Bushmills are very dear and by now very old friend too. <laughs> when I knew him first, he was professor of English literature at the American University of Lebanon. And we met through W.B. Yeats. Uh, Professor Bushri's book on Yeats's knowledge of the Arabic literature is, of course, a, a remarkably fine book on Yeats. Then, later, we have met in many parts of the world under very dramatic circumstances. I can't remember the year when you had uh, a, an exhibition and conference on Khalil Gibran arranged in Beirut in Lebanon. Yes. Well, I didn't get the message that the conference was cancelled. So I arrived in Beirut unexpectedly. It found at last through here the exhibition all arranged, everything was cancelled. The Druzes had started bombing the airport. It was really like a chessboard because everything was so close together. There were the Druzes up on the right, lobbing shells into the airport. There was a devastated site where the Palestinian camp had been. There were little groups of Israelis camped out at different points, and there were young men in tin helmets who knows what they were, but they looked very pleased with themselves, their rifles. They were usually about 18 and, and very fierce. And so there I found Suhil in the midst of this devastation and hatred. Um, such close quarters, you see. During the war, we didn't hate the enemy. We just hated the bombing because the enemy was somewhere else. We couldn't see them. But in Beirut, there was this intense concentration of, of, of hostility and hatred. But the, the wonderful thing is not only that Suhail came out of Beirut, but that so did Khalil Gibran, who, whose works are so full of um, harmony and love and reconciliation, all these things. I may say that The Prophet was one of my mother's favorite books. That was right back in 1916, perhaps. When was it published in England? But it was a book she dearly loved. She kept a number of books behind my father's solid theological volumes on the shelves and behind those my mother kept books like The Prophet and Gitanjali by Tagore and, and uh, Yeats's early poems and they would slip out and uh, my mother would just show them to me so when I met you so here it, I felt The Prophet was a real link because of course you have written already two books on Gibran, and a third one is in manuscript and will be appearing on the life and work of Khalil Gibran, both in Lebanon and in America. Uh, Suhil is, at this time, a distinguished professor of peace studies at the University of Maryland. And so, and, and also, of course, we met in Delhi. We've met in many strange places, but it's always been wonderful when we do. And it's wonderful to, 
particularly to have you here at Temenos, which I feel is where you should be, and you are with us, and have been a very dear friend, both of myself and of Temenos. So I won't spend any more time uh, but ask you to give your lecture on Gibran. Gentlemen, I'm <clears throat> delighted to be here tonight, really. So first of all, Catherine Brain has been an institution in her own right, an institution that has emanated learning and knowledge. But above all, I think this spirit of universalism, the unity of us all, and uh, to be with her is to renew this pledge that we took years ago, or those of us who are engaged in the activities of Temenus, to promote the unity of the human race. That's what we are here and that's what we do. Of course, uh, it, for me, it's a great honor to also address a very special group of people here tonight. And uh, I would like to, above all, recognize the presence of His Excellency Bassam Normani of the Lebanese Embassy which means that Lebanon is well on its way to heal its wounds. The fact that he's with us, yes. thank you for coming. Okay. Also, two very distinguished Lebanese ladies, Mrs. Leila Tannous and Ms. Shamas, both of whom have been very active in promoting the Gibran cause in America. They have uh, helped us a great deal. Ms. Tannous is... Uh, uh, representing uh, the Center for, Interna for uh, Gibran Studies in the University of Maryland, the first of its kind in the world, really. And it's an achievement, I think, that we have, at least in the academic world, a place very difficult for spirituality and the spiritual to penetrate, that we have a Center for Gibran Studies. Uh, Mr. Noos has been chairman of that committee for some time, and uh, Mrs. Maria Shumas is one of the most uh, distinguished members of that uh, committee. We are planning a big conference in 1999, just before uh, the year 2000. And the voice of Gibran, hopefully, will be the voice that we would like to sound in America, but it's for the whole world. The reason we postponed it from this year, it was supposed to take place this year, until 1999, is that we received a request from a Chinese group of uh, literary scholars who said that they wanted very much to participate. They are finishing the translation of the entire works of Jubran into Chinese, and they want to bring this to Maryland as well as other areas of the world. And we thought that perhaps to have an international conference worthy of its name, we could postpone. We postponed Gibran on several occasions when we were planning things in Lebanon. I don't think this would harm it or lessen, uh, perhaps maybe excite people more in anticipation. 
I hope that you will all be there. I think that uh, tonight's uh, lecture, I really didn't know how to begin and how to start, because if you finish a book, and I've just finished a book of 350 pages with Joe Jenkins, uh, a Welshman uh, of a bardic tradition, a man similar to myself, interested in matters of the spirit. Uh, he has written extensively on ethics and on spirituality. And I wanted very much, as every one of us who is in this position, uh, when he has a, let's say, a responsibility and a mission, when he realizes that time has come to relinquish it, to pass it on, he should do it and do it soon. So I invited him to participate in writing a book on Khalil Gibran. So this young man dedicated the whole of two years with me. Every paper I had written, everything I have done in the last 40 years on Gibran, we put in that book. The book will be published, hopefully, within the next seven months, and it's entitled Khalil Gibran, Man and Poet. I thought a title like that would be modest enough and would not uh, really suggest more than what it is. Of course, uh, I would have liked, uh, of course, to say that Khalil Gibran came from Lebanon. He was a Christian. He had a culture which was both Christian and Islamic. Uh, the moment you use our very marvelous and wonderful language, Arabic, you are bound to have an Islamic culture. You don't have to believe in the religion. You have the culture. You have the values. And so he wrote in these, and he was a Lebanese and an Arab, and I would have loved to tell you how I look at myself as an Arab, but this I shall leave to another time. I would concentrate this evening on what I thought would be very valuable notes on unity as vision and ethic in the writings of Khalil Gibran. The work of Khalil Gibran consists of many strands of thought and modes of representation. Like any creative individual who is in the process of interrogating the universe and exploring possible answers, the corpus of writing left behind does not form an indisputably coherent whole. Thus, uh, the reader of Gibran's work is likely to find some ideas, some metaphors, some stylistic techniques more appealing than others. And such personal evaluations may well vary with, one, with one's age and circumstance. The theme that I have found the most compelling in Gibran's work in the last perhaps 42 years of research and teaching is a theme of unity. One certainly cannot deny that in the country of his birth, there passed a period of grave disruption and disunity at all levels. It was unity and peace between warring factions and superpowers all over the globe is also a hope held by most of us here. Since 
our organization seeks to promote greater understanding between peoples. What Gibran was perhaps very anxious to do in his writings, I was quoting this evening the words of Edwin Markham, who's, uh, who's not a very great poet. He wrote at the turn of the century in America, and who wrote these lines, which I think are very profound, and explain what Temenus is trying to do, and it explains what Gibran tried to do. And the lines go as follows. He drew a circle and shot me out. A renegade, a heretic, a thing to flout. But love and I had wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. <laughs> there seem to have evolved two very general types of theories concerning how to advance most surely toward universal peace. One type of theory asserts that we must change the economy, change the society, change the United Nations, make more laws. Even, some go as far as saying, wage more limited wars. This kind of theory of change attracted Gibran, particularly during the earlier part of his life. And although a part of me is in agreement that improvements may be made by efforts to change the external world, I would like to focus on another type of theory today, one which predominates in Gibran's later writings. Um, you have to be an Arab and born in or lived in Lebanon to really understand why Gibran was so angry and so passionately angry in his early life. As time passed and wisdom descended upon him, he mellowed and he developed into a much more, perhaps, uh, understanding human being. But the rage at the beginning had its reasons. However, for a number of reasons, which there is not time to go into here, after World War I, Gibran began to shift his role from that of social critic to that of what may be called self-critic. In this criticism of the self, it is assumed that the state of the world might change if men change their minds or if they learn a new way of thinking and being, what we call transformation. His writings during this period expressed a number of sub-themes that, woven together, attest to what is often referred to as an Eastern vision of mankind and destiny. I shudder to use terms such as Eastern and Western. I quote again Jalal al-Din rumi one of the greatest Sufi poets of uh, the world, perhaps the greatest of them all. 
I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not real distinctions. The truth has no color, no nationality, no race. Beauty has no color, no nationality, no race. Evil has no color, no nationality, no race. What is true is for all. What is beautiful is by all and for all. And what is evil is recognized by all. Far from seeking to express an original doctrine, Gibran's aim was to remind his readers in unforgettable language of those eternal verities which had become discarded, if not denigrated, for centuries, especially since the Enlightenment. It is the ancient vision of the oneness of the universe. This dynamic universe is composed of sacred interlocking cycles of life, ultimate reality in this view cannot be rendered by using conventional linguistic distinctions, but rather all things move in a circle where beginnings and ends are indistinguishable. There are no dividing lines between people and things. All are one. The ethic associated with this vision is one of unconditional love. Love for all, since each is a part of the same giant self. In other words, one is loving one's conventionally defined self by the very act of loving someone else precisely because at a more profound level the two are one and one with all. Embedded within each member of creation is that mysterious will to ascend from the conventional world to merge totally with the greater self. What Emerson had called the over-soul. No one in modern literature, in modern literature written in English as distinctive from English literature, no one has been more aware of the important of the oversoul than three Lebanese writers who found themselves in the midst of a materialistic civilization controlled by Marx and Darwin and overrun by the capitalist systems of the world. No one more than they understood how important it was to express this awareness of the other self in English. And that's why we have this school 
of English in Lebanese literature, a school that has not yet been fully studied, but which recently I have, and very humbly really, most probably not very successfully, but tried to give it its form and shape in an Arabic monograph entitled The Lebanese, The School of English, The English School of Lebanese Writers. And this is in Arabic, hopefully will be translated one time. Anyhow, these were Amin Rihani, Mikhail Naimi, and Khalil Gibran. For some reason, the three met in America. The three used English as their language of communication with the rest of the world. The three, at the same time, wrote for their own people in their own language, Arabic. So we go back to this oversoul, Emerson's oversoul. This ascent is within man's potential. And in each lifetime, his central aim should be not to amass wealth, not to seek political power, but rather to actualize that potential to live within love, within God, within the greater self or soul, all of which concepts refer to the same realm of indefinable dynamic oneness. I like sometimes to leave the paper and tell stories. So I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> On one occasion, I was asked to go and teach at, in Sudan, it was in the 50s, at a Muslim seminary. It was equal to the Azhar. And I was invited by the Minister of Education to his office and said, so they want to introduce English. So you're going to go up, meet with the sheikh, and then <clears throat> organize how you're going to introduce English. I said, hey, wait. I'm Bahati. They may not accept me. He said, don't worry. Don't worry at all. They will never believe that we will send them someone who is not Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> If they ask me, I'm going to tell them. So, right, you tell them. I said, fine. I, was, I couldn't get out of it anyhow. So I said, but if they ask me, I'm going to tell them. He said, they will not ask you, don't worry. <laughs> so I arrived to, to the seminary and I have to meet the director, the rector, who's a very distinguished a man of insane. You looked at him and you saw the light of God come out of his face. You shook hands with him. You felt where the man comes from. He went down like this and said, Astaghfirullah Oh God, forgive my sins. I said, he knows. <laughs> right? He knows. And he thinks, I have polluted him, but what's, I'll see. I wait what he does next. And then he said, Welcome, my son. I am so delighted to see you. And he showered me with all the love in the world. 
Well, I said, I better say nothing. He said nothing. And I started working, and we were very happy together. But I noticed that on every occasion, when he met anybody who came, no matter who he was, tall, short, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, whatever he is, he would say, Astaghfirullah. And I really was so perplexed by this. And I wanted to find out. But you need, at that time, this is ancient history, and I think Catherine is right. Well, we're both very old. <laughs> at that time, it was not proper nor polite to ask somebody older than yourself questions. So you had to be at the right time, the right place. They were good times, I assure you. One day he said, I want you to come and have lunch with me, my son. Honored. So I go to his home. He and myself are alone. We sit down. The food, you know, in the Sudan, the food is brought in a tray on the floor. We sit down. And then he says to me, you happy, my son? With your presence, of course, you have shown me with your love, your guidance. He said, in that so but you have a question. <laughs> I said, yes, indeed, I have a question. He said, ask a question. So I asked, what is this? Every time you say, Sakurullah Basim, I want to understand. <laughs> then he asked me this. He said, did you read in the Quran the story of Adam and Eve? I said, of course, Master. I even know it. And I started reciting it to him. And I came to the point where God breathes out his soul into Adam. He said, stop. He said, you know, every time I meet a human being, I remember the verse where God says he has breathed of his soul into every human being. Every human being is a temple of that breath of God. So when I salute that human being, if I don't give the respect and the honor and the devotion that is expected of me for God to that human being, I ask for It was worth breaking my, you know, very, very erudite academic discourse. Yeah. Uh, Yeats once said that he represented the revolt of the spirit against the intellect. I assure you that I am in the same position in the academic institution to which I belong. I believe, as I said, that this second type of theory of change is particularly worth commemorating today. Variant forms of this ancient vision have come to form the basis of a considerable intellectual and spiritual revolution in the West during the present century. This revolution has begun to provide an alternative to the cultural chauvinism and religious exclusivism which we associate with the colonial mind and which still pervades many political ideologies today, right or left, of so many people, undoubtedly has had something to do with this new movement, which since his death 
has spread into so many spheres of life. Based on the little reading and writing that I have done on Gibran, I have come to believe that there may be found a marked parallel between the mystical vision such as made popular in Gibran's widely read later writings and contemporary and subsequent scientific thought. Though religion and science had for some time taken separate and often antagonistic paths, in recent decades there appears to have arisen the possibility of a momentous convergence of reconciliation. Put most simply, it appears that science, both natural and social, has been discovering by experiment what the mystic or Sufi already knew by intuition. And the works of the latter are being used increasingly to help guide the research and enrich the thinking of the most dedicated of scholars today. One could look at The Unfinished Animal by Rozak or Ferguson's Aquarian Conspiracy or Capra's Turning Point. Mystics, East and West, have largely agreed that the experience of transcendental awareness or vision cannot be adequately represented in the language of philosophy or in the framework of formal logic. As far back as the 14th century, Ibn Khaldun, the great Arab historian, the founder of the science of historiography, had demonstrated quite convincingly that the great danger lies in efforts to analyze vision, the fruits of intuition, according to the methods used for products of the intellect. One cannot discern in Gibran's writings a major proposition from which all others derive in some clearly demonstrable fashion. He was a poet. He had no business to do that either. It may be more appropriate to consider the images of mystical vision as interrelated, each meaning by reference to another, the whole gaining breadth and intensity as the reciprocal relationships between the images increase in evocative power. One might, however, speak of a key passage or a root metaphor that may serve to symbolize or stamp the vision of such a writer. You know, if you, of course, on a different level, the great scriptures of the world are like poetry in the same way. You read them in parts. It's not a PhD thesis. You don't have an introduction and a conclusion and footnotes. And God does not speak in this way either. You see, it is this overflow of inspiration which the poet has a share. 
in which the poet has a share with no doubt. As I said, you quote the Bible, a verse here, a verse there. The Quran, a verse here, a verse there. You ask me which is the greatest of all the verses of the Quran, I would tell you perhaps, أَمَّا الزَّبَدُ فَيَذْهَبُ جُفَاءً وَأَمَّا مَا يَنْفَعُ النَّاسِ فَيَمْكُثُ فِي الْأَرْضِ And that which is worthless vanishes like the foam. And that which benefits the human race remains, or that benefits mankind, remains on the face of the earth. And that is wisdom in itself, filling books. And that's what poetry, and that's what religion is all about. One such passage in Gibran's writings appears to me to do this. It is from his Arabic prose translated into English and published in a collection entitled Secrets of the Heart. All things in this creation exist within you and all things in you exist in creation. There is no border between you and the closest things and there is no distance between you and the farthest things. And all things, from the lowest to the loftiest, from the smallest to the greatest, are within you as equal things. In one atom are found all the elements of the earth. In one emotion of the mind are found the motions of all the laws of existence. In one drop of water are found the secrets of all the endless oceans. And this somehow reminds me of two lines from Ibn al-Arabi, one of the great mystic poets of Arabia, who had a tremendous influence on Gibran. And it goes, I think, something like that. أَتَحْسُبُ نَفْسَكَ جُرْمًا صَغِيرٌ وَقَدْ مُطَوَى فِيكَ الْعَالَمُ الْأَكْبَرُ it's almost like a challenge. I would translate it differently. Every translator has translated it. Do you think? Dare you think? You see, this is really the challenge. Dare you think, as a human being, that you are merely a small planet up there in the firmament? No. In you and in your heart and in your bosom is locked the entire universe. What a tremendous uplift for the human spirit it is. Our capacities, our abilities, our potential as human beings. Such a statement as the one I read, or this from Ibn al-Arabi, which echoes ancient Greek and ancient and Asian wisdom, may tend to irritate many modern scientists for its lack of proof. philosophers for its lack of clarity, and traditional theologians for its intimation of heresy. And we, the most distinguished academicians, we will look at this and we say, this is sentimental humbug. <laughs> Such an image of the world, in fact, would even tend to flatly contradict 
the premises held by the ordinary man in the street who believes that the dis distinctions he makes between black and white, male and female, Arab and Jew, Christian and Muslim, capitalist and communist, refer mutually exclusive, objective realities. But as other Sufis, Swamis, and mystics before him, Gibran not only contests the ontological validity of such conventional distinctions, but also contends that such ways of thinking may be detrimental to society. Instead of maintaining sectarian loyalties, for example, he says, if we were to do away with the various religions, we would find ourselves united and enjoying one great faith, one great religion, abounding in brotherhood. And of that mysterious source of all faith, he dared to write, a God who is good knows of no segregation amongst words or names. And were a God to deny his blessing to those who pursue a different path to eternity, then there is no human who should offer worship. You remember the original Arabic words I translate them into English, you're my brother and I love you, worshipping in your mosque, praying in your church, meditating in your temple, for you and I are the children of the spirit. Those so-called things we observe in the world, be they objects, elements, beings, or symbols, are but stepping stones that guide the sage to a wider and deeper vision of the nature of the universe. In this way of seeing, it is the relations between things, not their independent identity, which captures the imagination. Thus, Gibran is quoted by Mary Haskell as saying, there are painters, he told Mary Haskell one evening, there are painters who would call this dish of grapes beautiful and they would paint the grapes, trying to get just their very bloom and color and light and brownness. But when you look at the grapes, think of their vines and how they grow and the harvest. Think of the store where the wine is sold and the mouths it goes into. And think of the bowl they are in, made in China. And think about the Chinese. Seeing things that way enriches the imagination. The meaning of an object can be truly understood in its relations with other objects and events and ultimately in relation to the whole of which it is but a transient part. How true, no man is an island. In the mystic's vision of the world, this awareness is itself transcended. Ultimate reality, what the Arab Sufi poets called al-Jawhar, the essence, lies entirely beyond sensory perceptions, rational thought, or the belief in symbols in and of themselves. This is the level 
of mystical intuition. On this level, things are experienced, not only as profoundly interrelated in a dynamic process, but they are seen as part of the same underlying reality. This vision of oneness or unity has a variety of aspects and implications, some of which I would like now to explore. Let us start with the concept of God. At the level of vision, the distinction between God and man is elided. It is only when you are lost in your smaller selves, warns al-Mustafa in the garden of the Prophet, that you seek the sky which you call God. Or Gibran writes elsewhere in a more positive light, the human soul is but a part of a burning torch which God separated from himself at creation. Which is very similar to what this sheikh told me about the breath of God, separated from the main source. It is this when we speak about the love of human beings. It is when we love God in his majesty and glory that we can understand true love in relation to other human beings. <clears throat> in this view, our souls are part of God, an extension of the same primordial being. Or process. If marriage, and Gibran does suggest this in his sermon on marriage, is based on this kind of love, it can only continue to flourish and grow and not disintegrate into hate and disunion, separation and divorce. Similarly, we cannot truly be distinguished from other parts of creation despite our presumption of independence. It is this principle of the identity of self and other which not only may have been the most difficult principle for Gibran himself to assimilate but which has the most provocative of implications. The principle is expressed in many places in his work. Let us take, for example, the following image from Gibran's Jesus, the Son of Man. Joseph of Amithia, we read in Jesus, the Son of Man, is quoting Jesus. <clears throat> he would say, your neighbor is your unknown self made visible. His face shall be reflected in your still waters. And if you gaze therein, you shall behold your own countenance. And on another day, he said, You shall not be yourself alone. You are in the deeds of other men, and they, though unknowing, are with you all your days. They shall not commit a crime, and your hand not be with their hand. This identity or essence we share with the other, even our most detestable of contemporaries, 
is not an identity of static nature. Rather, as the quote above suggests, there is a hidden, unconscious complicity even between the criminal and the victim, the wicked and the weak. Perhaps one of the simplest metaphors Gibran has used to render this intuition is found in the Prophet. On page 49, he writes, As a single leaf turns not yellow, but with the silent knowledge of the whole tree, so the wrongdoer cannot do wrong without the hidden will of you all. In other words, as a part of that same organic whole of creation, each being shares in the cycles and processes which regulate the whole. This vision of unity has, of course, decisive implications for the way in which we think about ourselves, society, and nature. If each consists of the essence of all, and all of the essence of each, then it would be self-destructive to harm others. Logic. As well, it would be self-enhancing to praise another, since at the level of the greater self, we are identical. I don't know whether you read the Times Literary Supplement. If you don't, you're fortunate. <laughs> if you do, then you understand what I'm trying to say. It is always fault-finding that is far more interesting, you see, not what is the positive aspect. This is part of academic ethics now. How do you destroy the man in front of you, you see? We become masters in this game, you know. We do it beautifully. We do it in the name of... It would be self-enhancing, as I said, to praise another, since at the level of the greater self, we're identical. Gibran writes... My origin is their origin. My conscience is their conscience. My contention is their contention. My pilgrimage is their pilgrimage. If they sin, I am also a sinner. If they do well, I take pride in their well-doing. If they rise, I rise with them. If they stay inert, I share their slothfulness. A particular interest to me is how Gibran develops this vision and ethic of unity in a consistent pattern. For example, in his masterpiece, The Prophet. In the sermons of which this little book is composed, Al-Mustafa preaches a way of thinking entirely foreign to our habitual modes of cogitation. Let us take the example of his thoughts on the subjects of giving, working, and eating, three of the major preoccupations of everyday life. Asked by the people of Orfalis to speak of giving, Al-Mustafa warns that we should neither give with pain, nor give for reward, nor even give for the joy of giving. Instead, 
he speaks more approvingly of those who give, as in yonder valley, the myrtle breathes its fragrance into space, give effortlessly and habitually, without forethought, he seems to be saying. Through the hands of such as these, God speaks as the prophet. And from behind the eye, their eyes, he smiles upon the earth. In these passages, giving appears almost like the dynamic, life-enhancing dimension of oneness. Not something that should be hived off, separated, and appropriated by any individual. You know, among my people, we have certain cultural, I suppose, inducing tracks. It's very Arab. You, you, somebody says, well, I like your tie. And immediately I would say, Fadal. Now, I never understood what this meant until one day my father explained this to me. He said, you know, Suhail, you know why this is? Because when God has given you a gift. It is on trust. You keep it for a while. Then it is time for you to return it. If someone else sees this and says, this is marvelous and good, it is your duty, you who have been the recipient of God's grace, to pass on this gift to someone else to experience the same. Can you imagine in a society where we all do this? We will have no poor and no sense of injustice. These are things that unfortunately die out with progress. I don't know why, but they do. In the same spirit as one gives, one should also work. One is cautioned not to work merely for the pleasure its profits may provide. Still less should one avoid work out of distaste for the painful efforts demanded. I say unto you, he writes in the prophet, you that when you work you fulfill a part of earth's furthest dream assigned to you when that dream was born. Thus to work in love of the oneness of all is the idea. And when you work with love, concludes Al-Mustafa, you bind yourself to yourself and to one another and to God. Indeed, the Prophet's commentaries on every part of life seem to radiate out from this underlying vision of oneness, illuminating for the reader unsuspected potentials of human experience. Consider, to take just one more example, the perennial obsession, eating. We all eat, we have to eat. Al-Mustafa does not disturb the reader about what to eat and what not to eat. It's not a dietary list of things to do or not to do. In what quantities 
at what time of day, prepared in what type of way, etc. Rather, he's interested in our conception of the activity of eating and of how we resolve the problem of consuming part of that oneness to which we intimately belong. Now, I want to read this chapter on eating. I love eating myself, and I think uh, many of us do. We can't survive without it. We hear so much about it, so I would uh, read it out to you, if I may, page 88. Right. Then an old man, a keeper of an inn, said, Speak to us of eating and drinking. And he said, Would that you could live on the fragrance of the earth, and like an air plant be sustained by the light. But since you must kill to eat, and rob the newly born of its mother's milk to quench your thirst, let it then be an act of worship. And let your board stand on an altar on which the pure and the innocent of forest and plain are sacrificed for that which is purer and still more innocent in man. When you kill a beast, say to him in your heart, by the same power that slays you, I too am slain, and I too shall be consumed. For the law that delivered you into my hand shall deliver me into a mightier hand. Your blood and my blood is naught but the sap that feeds the tree of heaven. And when you crush an apple with your teeth, say to it in your heart, your seeds shall live in my body and the buds of your tomorrow shall blossom in my heart. And your fragrance shall be my breath. And together we shall rejoice through all the seasons. And in the autumn, when you gather the grapes of your vineyards for the winepress, say in your heart, I too am a vineyard and my fruit shall be gathered for the winepress. And like new wine, I shall be kept in eternal vessels. And in winter... When you draw the wine, let there be in your heart a song for each cup. And let there be in the song a remembrance for the autumn days, and for the vineyard, and for the winepress. Superb that. When a human being is finally delivered, into that mightier hand, his life is no more extinguished than that of the apple or the beast. It is merely transformed, reincarnated. On this subject, there is no more moving passage than that which terminates the Garden of the Prophet, published posthumously. These are Mustafa's Final words. 
Oh, missed my sister, my sister missed. I am with you, I am one with you now. No longer am I self. The walls have fallen and the chains have broken. I rise to you, emist, and together we shall float upon the sea until life's second day, when dawn shall lay you dewdrops in a garden and me a babe upon the breast of a woman. Thus, even in death, one does not cease to be part of the oneness of all. One merely shifts positions in the vast, mysterious circuitry of life. So too, with a vessel which has carried the soul in earlier life, in its post-mortem decomposition and subsequent dispersion, it follows a hidden law of nature, no less sublime than that of the soul. Gibran is reported to have confided his intuitions on this subject to Mary Haskell. In her journal, dated 12th of August, 1921, she writes, quoting him, <coughs> I sometimes imagine myself, my bodily part after death, lying in the earth and returning to the elements of the earth, the great loosening, the change everywhere, the opening into simpler things, the widening out into those things from which anything may be built up again, the great return, such deep quietness and a passing into the substance of things. As I believe these passages help illustrate that unity or oneness of the universe, is a root metaphor in Gibran's mystical writing, one which informs his perception of all types of events, the vision of each in all, and all in each, implies an ethic in which all spheres of activity are a celebration of life, longing, for itself. This is Gibran's phrase. Life longing for itself. The Sufis spoken about a shawq, yearning, longing. It inspires their whole life. It is this yearning for the ultimate goal, union with God, reaching the shore of the divine. And this life longing for itself, it's for that flame or separated from its source, the breath separated from its source, to return. This life is fundamentally dynamic and transformative. As the seasons change, so do the phases in a person's life. And so do the lives that incarnate a person's soul on its long journey towards complete transcendence of the self and total union with all. As indicated at the beginning of my talk, 
Gibran did not claim that his message was original. He never did that. His aim, it's only we in the universities that write original things. <laughs> the poets never claim that anything is original. As a matter of fact, the great manifestations of God, the great, whether it's Muhammad or Moses or Jesus or Christ, they say, this is something that has been told to you before. It's amazing, isn't it? And so the poets also, they bring the greater wisdom of the past. It is we in the universities that create new things. It's original, you see. I'm sorry, I'm being very flippant and out of order, Kathleen. You'll forgive me tonight. Uh, allow me to enjoy myself a bit, but... By the way, I say these things in the university, and of course, I assure you that nobody takes me seriously, so it's all right. <laughs> Gibran never really claimed that the, his message was original. His aim was rather to make an ancient wisdom accessible to modern man. The Cartesian, Newtonian, and Darwinian ways of thinking had led to a soul-splitting materialism. The various political or religious absolutisms had proved devastating, while relativism had shown to be impractical. In Gibran's prophetic writings, one could perceive an alternative, one that seems to have been chosen as valid by diversity of his eminent contemporaries and those influenced by them. One can find parallels to this Eastern vision. Call it Eastern. I would call it true vision. In the work of Albert Einstein, Westerner, Erwin Schrodinger, Westerner, Niels Bohr, Westerner, and Werner Heisenberg, also Westerner the fathers of what has become known as the new physics. You know, I am very reluctant to use this difference between East and West. I don't believe in that. And I myself, as an Arab, I believe that I am as part of the civilization of the West as any Englishman or any German. And I don't want to forget the Frenchman, otherwise they get terribly upset. <laughs> you must remember that even Islam, a religion which everybody identifies with there, is a Western religion. It is based on the Judo-Christian tradition. What are we talking about? You see? So this approach to these things, from point of unity, of seeing everything in whole, complete, very useful. In the field of biology, C.H. Waddington's systems, perspective, and the recent popular essays by Lewis Thomas, both evidence parallels with passages in Gibran's writing. Psychologists stimulated by William James and Carl Gustav Jung have expressed concepts or theories which attest to the fundamental validity of transcendental experience. The approaches of social scientists, such as that of the structuralist Claude Levi-Strauss or Gregory Bateson, 
also exhibit mystical foundations. The theme of unity in Gibran's writing was not and is not, therefore, the message of a voice crying in the desert. It is more accurate to view it as one vigorous contribution to a spiritual revolution which has arisen to correct the self-destructive ways of thinking that have dominated our age. Change, indeed, is imperative. May the vision of unity so beautifully expressed in Gibran's writings inspire yet another generation to begin this process at its deepest yet most accessible level from within in a spirit of oneness with all. This indeed, this unity as vision and ethic is what we very much need to consider in developing our ethos for the next millennium. I am really moved and proud that an Arab voice will make that contribution with other voices throughout the world to speak the message of oneness. We are all in this together. It is our world, not yours or mine. This world is beautiful when we all share in its beauty. It is safe and peaceful when we all share in its peace. But it cannot happen before we have a degree of justice which leads to unity and unity which leads to peace. Unfortunately, all peace activities are reversed. People want to start with peace. Have unity. <laughs> but it doesn't work. You start with justice, you get unity, you get peace. I did not, of course, in any way justify my academic position by delivering an academic lecture. I spoke to you from the heart. And I want to end nearly, perhaps, I have how many more minutes? What, 20 minutes? Really? Okay. Yeah, we have discussion, fine, if you like discussion. I just like to share with you <coughs> some of the things that I have been saying that come very vividly through Gibran's words. Uh, in the universities, we talk about things. Uh, we were talking about this this afternoon. Really, it would have been far more uh, correct of me to read only Gibran to you this evening. So let me just take a few words from that great of our time, which feed into all the marvelous emotions and passions I want to stir in you. It was but yesterday 
I thought myself a fragment quivering without rhythm in the sphere of life. Now I know that I am the sphere and all life in rhythmic fragments moving within me. They say to me in their awakening, you and the world you live in are but a grain of sand upon the infinite shore of an infinite sea. And in my dream I say to them, I am the infinite sea and all worlds are but grains of sand upon my shore. Only once have I been made mute. It was when a man asked me, who are you? Once I saw the face of a woman and I beheld all her children not yet born. And a woman looked upon my face and she knew all my forefathers dead before she was born. Remembrance is a form of meeting. Forgetfulness is a form of freedom. Make me, O oh God, the prey of the land ere you make the rabbit my prey. One may not reach the dawn save by the path of the night. You are blind and I am deaf and dumb. So let us touch hands and understand. The significance of a man is not in what he attains, but rather in what he longs to attain. Some of us are like ink and some like paper. And if it were not for the blackness of some of us, some of us would be dumb. And if it were not for the whiteness of some of us, some of us would be blind. The reality of the other person is not what he reveals to you, but in what he cannot reveal to you. The real in us is silent, the acquired, talkative. Frogs may bellow louder than bulls, but they cannot drag the plow in the field nor turn the wheel of the winepress, and, and of their skins you cannot make shoes. How noble is the sad heart who would sing a joyous song with joyous hearts. Uh, this reminds me of a hadith sharif, uh, one of the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Ana indal Beautiful lad. I am with those whose hearts have been broken for my sake. Every man loves two women. One is the creation of his imagination. The other is not yet born. <laughs> I don't know whether this is politically correct or not, but <laughs> who cares? Men who do not forgive women their little faults will never enjoy their great virtues. How true. 
Love that does not renew itself every day becomes a habit and in turn a slavery. This should be the motto of every marriage. It should be on the wall. Every morning, the married couple should see this. Love that does not renew itself every day becomes a habit and in turn a slavery. Love is a word of light written by a hand of light upon a page of light. How shall my heart be unsealed unless it is broken? Generosity is not in giving me that which I need more than you do, but it is in giving me that which you need more than I do. You are indeed charitable when you give, and while giving, turn your face away so that you may not see the shyness, shyness of the receiver. And finally, maybe I end with these words of Gibran, prophetic. I came to say a word, and I shall utter it. Should death take me ere I give voice, the morrow shall utter it. For the morrow leaves not a secret hidden in the book of infinite. I came to be for all and in all. That which alone I do today shall be proclaimed before the people in days to come. And what I now say with one tongue, tomorrow will say with many. Discussion. Please, please, Mr. Mustafa. No, no, no. no. I mean, the, the Western world had adopted it, yeah, and it, uh, of course, you're absolutely right. As always, you correct me. You see, you're quite, quite, quite. 
Ah, yes. Touché, touché, touché. Touché, touché. Touché, touché. You go, eh, eh, magha, mazbout. Of course. We're talking about two minutes, so I'm guilty of dividing. No, no, you're Yeah, I think that uh, we've, we've had an uphill with Gibran, really. I mean, struggling to get him recognized in the West. But I tell you, the results have been very gratifying. <laughs> when I was teaching at Oxford uh, in the late 80s, early 80s, really, mid-80s, I tried desperately to promote him there and so on. And finally, when Blackwell's decided to give him a shelf, I realized that he had arrived. There was one. The second thing was that in the United States, uh, the, the memorial garden that was voted by Congress in honor of Khalil Gibran was the only garden in the whole of the United States uh, which was dedicated to the memory of a great poet. So this was another tremendous recognition. And then finally, I think, was the University of Maryland's decision to create a Gibran Center for research and study. We had hoped to create a chair, but unfortunately we couldn't have enough funds for that. But then we could have uh, enough to get the thing going. And uh, m m the books you see here, for example, the the first annotated edition of The Prophet, which is the first annotated edition of The Prophet, the love letters of Khalil Gibran to Maiziadi, and the book which will be published in seven months' time, which is Khalil Gibran, Poet and Prophet, uh, Man and Poet, is in fact the result of the work done at the University of Maryland. So I think he has arrived. And uh, the lecture in Terminus, I gave one is it the first on Gibran, I think, or the second? Maybe the second, maybe the second. Uh, is also an indication of uh, that, of course, this is, uh, is his home. I mean, there's nothing surprising here. That, uh, the Terminus is, is an organization that is open to all cultures, all civilizations, all religions. Nobody's out. It's a circle that includes everybody. And so I'm really delighted to have been able to share this with you uh, tonight. Maybe um, in the universities, when I am invited to speak on Lebron, I usually uh, call my lecture an evening with Khalil Gibran. And that would really uh, be quoting from his writings. I do not uh, sit down and write uh, intelligent, you see, highly clever discourses on Gibran. Let him speak for himself. Yes, there's a question. Yes, sir, please. Thank you for your eloquent uh, exposition this evening. I feel rather hesitant to ask this question because I, of course, am younger than you. Um, <laughs> and uh, having regards to your story, I'm a bit hesitant, but I, I'll go ahead anyway. Please, so, please, pleasure. I, I wanted to, to ask. Gibran that has always fascinated me is, is um, in the prophet where he talks about love and he says, um, and I think it's between the man and the wife, and he says, 
maybe not a bond of love, but rather let it be a sea that moves between the shores. I I never really understood this when I was separated like the columns of the temple, correct? That we are not let let us uh, be separate in our togetherness. You see, this really is uh, that no or when people get married, they think they possess each other. They think they must change one another. They think that they must impose on the contrary. Each is a human being in his or her own right. <coughs> the sovereignty of each must be recognized by the other. It is in this unity of the two being separate that a marriage can be a successful one. I, I don't know, I, I, I tell you from experience, I have been married for the last 43 years. I have never ever uh, regarded myself or had the right to ask my wife, what did you do? With whom did you speak? How much did you spend? It's <laughs> 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 impossible. Impossible. It is demeaning for my wife, but it's, I think, more demeaning for me. You see, if we were one, we were talking about this relationship. How do you this? This relationship can be only in recognizing the sanctity, the sovereignty of the other individual, be it be it the wife or the husband. Can you quote the prayer of Abdu Baha when he says talks about the dividing line that you can't overpass one to the other? That lovely little I can't remember the actual word. I can't remember it either, but uh, but that's a very good point. Exactly. That you you always respect that silent little bit that you are. You can't override that little silver line between you. And it's it's extremely important to remember that, of course, you know the feminists are trying to change these things by law <coughs> and by intimidation, or by saying that Milton should not be taught. Then they don't teach Milton anymore. Because there's a phrase in the he worships the divine and she the divine in him. Like uh, this has, of course, all its time. It's not an issue. The issue is you can't bring about understanding between men and women except through the transformation of the inner self. Of course. I know this from my own colleagues. When the, the men are alone, they're terrible. <laughs> and then when they are in the committee, they defend the things they don't believe in. You <laughs> see, it becomes political correctness. I, be, I think it's hypocrisy. If you don't believe it. But I have a wonderful story to share with you. Want another story? Yes, yes. The story is more important than The story. I arrived in America and I was, uh, you know, I'm a camel driver from the desert. I don't know. And uh, here I was. I came to America and I was passing to go to my office every morning through the women's studies department. I was the only guy who did that. But I was unaware of what was going on. And everybody was looking at me as I went in and I went out there. But the ladies in that women's studies were very kind. Oh, I know, how nice. <laughs> right. 
And I really didn't understand until one day, one of the professors told me, how dare you go through this? <laughs> I said, what? He said, I can't go through this. If I go, the looks they gave me is enough to kill me. <laughs> so one day I asked one of the ladies who was there, I said, what is the reason that I can't? You like me. <laughs> she said, ah, okay. Don't tell anyone else. I said, you see, you unlike the white Western male have been a victim like us. That's what I'm yeah. <laughs> So I thought, well, don't disappoint them at all. So I received all the bounties of being pampered and honored and all that. But this is how. It's unfortunate we live in a world like this. I think I think we have to be honest. We have to change people's inner self. The transformation comes from within. And you know, this is marvelous. This statement in uh, it's Socrates. The, wasn't it that marvelous thing on the Delphic Oracle? Know thyself, right? Know thyself. What's the greatest wisdom? And then a thousand years later. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad said, Man alfa nafsahu alfa He who recognizes himself recognizes his God. And Baha'u'llah, a thousand years later, says, Look into thine heart, you shall see me standing there. This relationship with the other self we live in, which is our real selves, is the one that is most important for us. When we come, we can live in peace with this other self. Then we can live with peace with everyone else in the world. You feminists. <laughs> what do you like me? <laughs> you know, answering your question, I, I, I wanted to give my wife a gift for our wedding anniversary. Just, I, just to, and really, I. My wife is not the type of uh, woman who is easily uh, deceived by gifts of gold and roses and all that sort of thing. She's a very wise and intelligent woman and intimidating in, mo in most cases, you see. So I thought I'd give her my book. And I wrote this. And I wrote this. And I think this speaks a great deal. I said, for the one and only Mary, grateful, love that knows no words. And then I quoted Gibran, for love is sufficient unto itself, even after 43 years. <laughs> I think this is the relationship that, thank you. <laughs>